On this episode of the Vincast, I chat with legendary viticulturist and winemaker Mark Walpole. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And if you had have asked me last year, do you think you would not only be bringing the podcast back, but releasing three episodes in three weeks, I probably would have told you no, that is uh, absolute lunacy. But uh, I guess no one could have predicted what um, what the situation would have been now and you know the amount of lunacy that is going on. Um, but we we have to um, make the best of uh, the uh, the situation that we are in, uh, and um, yeah, with people who are certainly travelling a lot less, if at all, um, and you know, at home, whether they're in uh, in mandatory lockdown or um, just sort of playing safe and doing the right thing, um, people are at home, including myself. And um, this is allowing me to to catch up with people, uh, taking advantage of, um, I guess, this, the technology of Zoom, which is fantastic. Uh, it's a lot easier to record and um, and make the episodes available. So I'm very grateful to everyone who is making themselves available, of course. But uh, I'm very grateful to the people who are listening, and uh, I'm so thrilled that people have been getting in touch and letting me know that they are happy that the podcast is back. Um, I've got a number of episodes already recorded, lining up um, lots of guests. So hopefully I'll be able to bring out a new episode every week, at least until the end of the year. But um, uh, someone I've been wanting to talk to for a very, very long time, um, a, a hero of mine, uh, because he is one of the authorities on Italian grape varieties, um, which of course, uh, if you know me, uh, no, I'm you know very very um, committed to the to the Italian varieties and firmly believe that they are representing a, a fantastic opportunity in Australian viticulture and winemaking. Uh, Mark Walpole, who uh, worked for many years with the Brown Brothers and then with the Pizzini family, and has consulted to a lot of people uh, as well as you know launching his own wine brands um, currently with uh, Fighting Gully Road based uh, not, so, not far out of Beechworth. So um, finally was able to sit down with him and talk about his journey and uh, I really do hope you enjoy the episode. Um, please stick around till the end to find out how you can get in touch with Mark and find some of his delicious wines. Um, but until then, I'll see you on the other side. Mark, thank you for joining me on uh, on the Vincast. Um, absolutely uh, long time fan, very much wanted to have you as a guest on the show for a long time. So I really do appreciate you making some time. Oh, thank you. And apologies for taking as long as it has. No, not at all. Look, um, in the time that I've been doing the Vincast, um, you know, there's certainly been a lots of things that you've been, you've lots of projects, um, and you know, exciting things you've been doing. So, you know, we'll, well, um, hopefully um, later on in the episode, we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, I start every episode of the podcast by asking my guests if they can remember the earliest interaction that they had with wine that had a bit more of a profound impact on them and 
potentially led them on a, a path towards uh, wine loving and um, a career in the industry? Um, look, it's interesting. Um, my first, uh, I guess, my first interaction with grapevines and wine was when I was a kid, actually. Uh, my father had a couple of grapevines on the back sort of pergola on the back of the house to keep the sun off. And um, it, there was a, the cuttings originally came from Rutherglen, I believe, um, but we just collected them from an old vine down in the creek. And uh, anyway, so it, there was a brown musket and a couple of Doradillos, which were very, very old Spanish varieties that um, was basically just a sort of distillation type varieties, very, very neutral. Um, anyway, so I think when I was probably about, I don't know, seven or eight or nine or something, I decided I was going to make a wine from the brown musket. So picked the grapes in the, in the, in the um, sort of autumn and uh, squashed it through an old colander or something like that, put the juice in a bottle, started fermenting. And I had it out the back, so no one sort of knew about it. Anyway, my mother discovered it and... Um, was just disgusted and then just tipped it out. So that was my first attempt at the wine, wine making, which was thwarted by her. And uh, it really wasn't until, I guess, uh, the late 80s that um, we <coughs> really, I got, got, got back into it again. So I started working at Brown Brothers Winery, not so much in the vineyards, but um, as a, as a uh, farm manager in 1987, the beginning of 87. And uh, had the responsibility then of looking after uh, all of the soil management and that sort of thing in the vineyards, as well as just looking after the farming land. So, right. Okay. Where did you grow up? Uh, grew up in the northeast of Victoria in the Ovens Valley, which is now the Alpine Valleys wine region. Okay. A uh, family farm there that uh, the family's been on since the late 1800s. Um, what, what was. Um... Yes. What, what, so what originally, was, yeah, the farm was very, grazed. very mixed, uh, sheep, cattle, wool. Uh, we used to grow some grass seed, uh, also walnuts. Um, and it really probably wasn't until I started at Browns that uh, we purchased a very, very nice piece of ground right next to the farm that we'd always had our eyes on. And uh, we started planting that in 1988. So... Um, so in terms of um, your um, wanting to make some wine, where did you get the inspiration from that at seven or eight? Like was, <laughs> was there wine around you as a kid? Like were, you, were your no, parents sort no, of interested in wine no, at all? Like where, where did you no, get no. the inspiration? I can tell you with, with uh, great authority that I wasn't certainly thinking about, I didn't even know what wine was at that age, let alone thinking of making it. Yeah, not, but we had a dry house, actually. Um, my father used to go and have a beer whenever he sort of could sneak one in somewhere, but uh, no, it was a completely dry house. And I think that's why my mother took the wine out in disgust. Right, okay. So it really wasn't uh, until we started the vineyard and sort of got going in the wine industry that we managed to cajole her into having a few glasses now and again. And I think she now quite enjoys it, actually. So. Was there a particular reason why they might have been teetotal? Uh, I think her father drank a fair bit. And right, okay. I'm not happy about that. So, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Um, right, so... When, my so... Father, when they were married, uh, yeah, he was um, 
basically had to get to dry off. In, encouraged to abstain. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and growing up in, in that part of uh, Victoria, um, what was that like? Um, you know, obviously this is a part of, um, of the country, um, you know, in the Alpine Valleys, as you mentioned. Uh, now, I've certainly a lot more um, getting a bit more traffic with um, ski resorts uh, but but back then you know, there would have been a, a bit of um, agriculture going on, particularly with migrant families, I would think. Uh, very much, yes. So particularly like the Ovens Valley and the King Valleys in particular, are very, very big uh, immigrant populations. So I grew up, went to, there, was, there were no sort of Italian um, people or kids at our primary school, but when I went to high school, the... Uh, the high school was just a whole sort of mix of mainly Italian, but quite a few Yugoslav, a uh, few Spanish kids, plus the Aussies. So, so yeah, large um, population of, I guess, um, immigrants uh, working on tobacco farms, particularly. So the, the uh, Ovens Valley was a very, very big tobacco growing area, Ovens and Buffalo Rivers. So um, obviously with those, uh, you know, um, Italian population, they always had their own grapevines out the back and were making their own sort of, uh, yeah, their own wines. Like the, 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 the sort of the history of that part of, um, uh, you know, the King Valley and the Alpines and um, the Alpine Valleys, as far as that um, history of tobacco and then, you know, converting to more, um, you know, a lot more grapevines, is tobacco a cool climate crop? Or is it, is it is just that that's what they happened? Like there was, I, I guess, a market for tobacco at that time. And so that's what they planted because they could make money from it. Look, um, it's interesting. I, I, cause I, I do know, sorry, Tim Top, I do know that um, yes. hops is something that has been grown up in that yep. part. Of the, but, but hops is absolutely a cool climate crop. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't, a, you know, sure if tobacco was kind of in that category as well. Look, I'm not entirely sure when they first started growing tobacco, but I do know when I was actually doing a fair bit of research when we were sort of writing the geographic indications for the regions back in sort of 1999, 2000, I came across, uh, like I was looking for, I guess, information on wines that were made uh, historically and came across one of the catalogues from the intercolonial exhibitions. And the one that was held in Melbourne in 1880 had all sorts of, um, I guess, things that had been grown and were on display, like a big sort of agricultural show. So they had New Orleans cotton that had been grown on the ovens and they had tobacco and they had all sorts of stuff that obviously when the people came into the valleys, they just tried all sorts of things. So hence, I think, yeah, hops, hops were grown simply because of uh, the, the need for beer, but I think also tobacco was grown simply again for people were smoking and a lot of a lot of smokers so it clearly worked um it needs humidity so um like it's an annual crop uh so it needs high humidity and obviously you can get high humidity in tropical climates or you can get high humidity in the valleys so mm. so the valley environments are fantastic for that because you get all of the the uh, i guess the humid air sits down in the valley floor so and they tried to grow tobacco on the high, higher peaks or sort of on the ridges and things like that. It didn't work very well at all. So but it was perfect down on the valley floor. All right. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, so going, so going um, to school and stuff like that, you, did you 
it was it you know an assumption that you would sort of continue into sort of the agricultural side of things where like when did you start to get a bit more interested in in, in farming and, and so you went to work for brown rubbers specifically yeah, for so. farming not necessarily for viticulture no that's correct um so yeah so the family farm a couple of thousand acres uh sheep cows dairy as i was saying so you know as soon as we could sort of basically walk we're out in you know splashing around in the mud and getting in the back of the old land rover and feeding sheep and all that sort of thing um so you know i had one i've got two other brothers one other brother is totally disinterested in farming whatsoever and other oldest brother is managing the farm at the moment so I guess I was always wanting to be outside and do farming or sort of horticultural stuff I probably preferred growing things more so than uh, sort of stock mm. um, so I actually you know I did quite a lot of work with sheep but didn't particularly like cows at all um, but uh, yeah, whatever, you know, if I could grow stuff. So, uh, you know, I was always sort of germinating things and growing things. And, uh, you know, when we were old enough to um, sort of use a shovel and stuff like that, we were allocated a small plot in the veggie garden. We could grow our own stuff in the, in the veggie garden. And oh, cool. So well, I was sort of had this, I guess, bent towards growing crops as opposed to livestock. So hence, I think... Um, as opportunities opened up to do that sort of thing, that's what I did. So um, what did you do before you started working at, at Brown Brothers? Um, look, when I left school, I went and worked in Esperance in Western Australia just for a year looking, you know, just, just general farming over there. Uh, then I went and did a year up in the Riverina, just again, same general farming, cereal cropping, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and after that, then went to Glen Ormiston Agricultural College down in Western Victoria and did two years associate diploma of farm management there. Um, so I did that. Uh, came home for a year and managed the farm after I'd finished the uh, farm management degree. My brother was overseas enjoying himself. So I did that for a year. And then when he came back, I shot off overseas and I worked down in, West, in, in southern England on properties there for a year, Winchester and Reading and places like that. So, and then when I came back from the UK, I went down and had an interview with Peter Brown and John Brown, and uh, they had a job for me. So, uh, Peter was pretty keen to fob off the um, sort of farming activities to someone else. So, that's what I took on. So, it, it was, that was that in like employment or was that a consultancy type of thing? No, 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 definitely. Yeah, no, so I was a full-time right, okay. farm manager. Oh, he just so didn't want to do it. And by this point, did you have a bit of an interest in soils? Uh, always had an interest in soils and growing things, yeah, so right from very early on, actually. My father actually also was very, very sort of interested in, I guess, soil management and soil conservation and, um, you know, sort of pastures and that sort of thing so right yeah. yeah what what um what was the kind of the production at brown brothers like when you joined them like um how how diversified were they how far flung were their vineyards how much were they working with um a lot of different growers and 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 how involved were you at that stage with with um that kind of management um 
I think the year I started their production was about three and a half thousand tonnes. They had, they had not long bought and planted the vineyard up at the very top of the King Valley at Whitlands at about 800 metres. Um, they had growers in the King Valley. Uh, they had the Miloa Vineyard and they had a vineyard up at uh, Mystic Park just beyond, or just beyond Kerrang near Swan Hill. Um, and they had a lot of growers all through the King Valley and up in the Murray Valley as well. So, um, and obviously there was a whole host of varieties that were being uh, grown at that point. Um, I guess I guess I always had an inquiring mind and uh, sort of, I guess, having the opportunity to work with all these different varieties and the different climates was really quite an exciting thing. Um, and I think it probably sort of whet my appetite for just, you know, just carrying on with the whole alternative varietals thing, um, you know. So, so when you joined them, they'd already um, been heavily involved with um, engaging with uh, families in um, particularly around, you know, that northeastern Victorian area. Look, um, and, and were they kind of looking at uh, encouraging families, I guess, you know, certainly the Italian families to start planting other varieties or they, were they, it was just sort of what they needed? They had a, yeah, it was very interesting, they had a, like a really massive growth trajectory. And so um, they just had this huge growth, which was almost, you know, just couldn't, couldn't feed the growth quickly enough. So they were taking on a lot of growers in the King Valley. At that time, it was mainly Riesling, Chardonnay, um, a bit of Shiraz and Cabernet, not necessarily alternative varieties as such. Um, but up in, obviously in the Murray Valley, they were growing, you know, sort of orange musket, Flora, Tarango, things like that. Um, it was probably about the time I started in the late 80s that they started, I guess, sort of connecting with the Italian growers like the Pizzinis, so Fred Pizzini and Arnie Pizzini and getting them to grow Nebbiolo and Sangiovese and Barbera and those varieties. Um, and I guess, yeah, things sort of just went from there. Prior, I guess prior to that, you know, they had a bit of a dabble with Gewürztraminer and, you know, things like that, but not necessarily the Italian the Italian connection, I guess, came probably in the late 80s in terms of the Italian varieties. So when you started with them, is that something that you kind of got involved with um, fairly, fairly soon after you started uh, in, in terms of particularly working with, for example, the Pizzini family and, and kind yep. of, um, yep. you know, working with them about, like educating them if they didn't already know, educating them a yep. bit about, um, you know, some of these what we yeah, would consider newer varieties? Probably fortuitously, um, a couple of years after I started with Browns, they had a bit of a sort of review of what they were doing. And I think it was sort of, uh, I guess, reflected their growth and, you know, sort of uh, what they were doing. And they decided to set up a viticultural research and development group. And I actually moved into that from sort of got out of farm, farm management and got into this sort of video R&D group and my role in that group was to provide advice to all of their uh, contract grower base. So I worked very closely with all the guys in the King uh, Valley and up in the Murray Valley as well, sort of helping them to, I guess, grow the, 
the varieties as you know best they could be grown. So obviously, with a lot of the new varieties, I just did a lot of research on you know, how they were grown, what sort of rootstocks they were on, what sort of trellis systems they were using, and try and provide you know the best advice to the the, the growers on that. So yes, I guess my my interest sort of came by by researching, I guess. Um, and was that and, um, theoretical research, or did you actually have the opportunity to go over? Um, to to Italy at that point to kind of have a look at some of these uh, varieties. I took it upon in myself. In fact, I I sort of I, I took two months in 1995, and I, I just organised myself this huge trip starting in France, and I, I just organised visits all the way through sort of Bordeaux, Cognac, right down through you know Rioja, Ribera del Duero, uh, Barcelona also down right down through sort of Piemonte down into Tuscany and then back up through Switzerland and so I had this sort of I guess it was a journey of discovery uh, and that really just sort of I guess opened my eyes to so many other varieties and other climates and just you know lots of other opportunities so um, I was fortunate that uh, I'd accrued a huge amount of annual leave which which I was able to take and uh, yeah so that was just that was really the sort of the beginning of the, the real journey in alternative varieties, actually. So, and, and how uh, were you at all involved in terms of um, the wine production itself at this point? Look, I guess um, I had quite a, an interest in wine making, and so I tried to, again. The most of the gr- most of the winemakers at Brown Brothers at the time really sort of were, weren't really accustomed to working with anything other than Cabernet, Shiraz, Merlot, Chardonnay, Riesling, Tremina. So I can certainly still remember when the very first Nebbiolo came into the winery, the winemaker had no idea what to do with it. And they just said it didn't have a lot of colour, so they just basically crushed it up, pressed it and made it into rosé. So, you know, that was as much interest or knowledge that the winemakers had too. So I sort of spent a lot of time trying to educate them you know, with what I'd learned as well. So, um, and yeah, I guess, I guess my interest in the Italian stuff also, you know, I got to know the Pizzini's very, very well. And so Fred Pizzini and I got together and we made our first Nebbiolo together in about 1991. And I think, again, it was that sort of interest uh, in making the Italian stuff that really sort of encouraged the Pizzini family to get their, their own uh, label up and running and uh, I guess you can see how successful that has been for them today. Can you remember at, at that stage what it was about Italian varieties that uh, spoke to you a little bit more? Look, I guess it was just so, they were just so different than anything else, you know, in terms of their, you know, particularly like Nebbiolo in particular. So, you know, lighter colour, tannin, and the sort of those sort of ethereal characters, I guess, that sometimes people see in Pinot Noir, and it's just this, you know, you can understand, uh, you know, the Holy Grail almost of um, trying to trying to make the best wine from such a difficult variety. Uh, it's so easy to over-extract tannin to make them too hard, or um, you know, it, it's it's such a hard variety to get absolutely right and make make a great wine. So. Uh, Fred and I, un- under some some really sort of primitive conditions, made a great first Nebbiolo in 1991, and I think we went on to 
get the best wine and the alternative varieties wine show in that wine. So uh, that was really sort of, I guess, gave us uh, the momentum to carry on and do other things. So we had a lot of fun making Nebbiolo and other varieties well, ever since really. Mm. So um, were you obviously, you know, the opportunity to, to travel well, you took it upon yourself, I should say, um, to travel um, over to to Europe, particularly into Italy. Uh, were you and Fred also kind of doing more vinous research? Were we sort of opening bottles and sort of tasting wines, talking about what you liked, what you didn't like, that kind of thing? Look, it was uh, it was always a fantastic thing too. I, I used to finish at Browns, and then you know, I don't know, at five o'clock or five thirty, we'd get in. I'd get in the car drive up to Whitfield and then Fred and I would, you know, just do wine work in the evening. And while we were doing that, Katrina would cook up something fantastic in the kitchen. And I'd always bring along a, you know, a Barbaresco, a Barolo or a Brunello or, you know, Chianti or something like that to share with them, you know, over dinner uh, later in the evening. So um, I think it would have been slightly maybe... more affordable back then, I would think. <laughs> slightly. Um, yeah, I guess you could say it was. Um, but look, I don't know whether that also, you know, got Katrina interested in sort of taking the whole cooking thing further, uh, you know, it's a tavola at the moment, but, um, yeah, well, embra- particularly embracing just, uh, the more authentic Italian cooking as well. Yes, absolutely right. And, edu- absolutely. and educating. And look, um, Fred's, yeah. Fred's mother was a fantastic cook as well. So, um, I think Katrina learned a lot from her. Uh, so we had some great great meals and some great wines. So um, again, also probably it was in 1995, I think, or 1999, sorry. Uh, Fred and Joel Pizzini, Arnie Pizzini and myself went on a trip through Italy organized by uh, Dr. Richard Smart. And we went and visited a whole host of fantastic wineries through Italy, right from the north to the south. And really got, uh, I guess, exposed to a huge amount of, you know, very, very good wines from a lot of varieties that uh, really weren't even grown in Australia at the stage. So um, I think that sort of, again, opened Fred's eyes and Arnie's eyes to what they could do with some of these other varieties. Well, certainly in, in Italy in the 90s, apart from some of those classic regions that you mentioned, like Piedmont and, and Tuscany, you know, it was, it was the rest of Italy that started to um, really improve and have a much better understanding about their own um, soils and climates and, and particularly um, viticultural management and, 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 and vine material and clonal material. So that would have been a great opportunity to sort of see how much they were progressing in, in Italy and, and to sort of, in, I guess, sort of see the potential for what they could be in Australia as well. Yes, look, I think um, particularly going into Sicily um, at that time, uh, it was still very much a backwater and I can still recall doing a bit of research. And I think at the time, 90% of Sicily's production was actually sent out of Sicily in bulk. There was literally 10% being bottled and labelled as, you know, Sicilian, you know, particularly red table wine anyway. So... Um, but it was just fantastic to see things like you know, Frappato, Nero d'Avola, Caricante. Uh, we, we were fortunate to go and see some fantastic producers like Planeta, um, Bananti. Uh, so, yeah, just, I guess, exposed to some 
really, really great examples of some of those varieties. And I think as, some, as someone said to me once, he said, you only need to see one great wine from a variety to see what its potential is. So, um, and we were certainly exposed to some of those wines and it's, it's okay, these wines can be fantastic. And it's just a matter of now trying to find the places in Australia that, um, that they can really thrive. So. Certainly, I would think uh, working for Browns across a number of different regions and no doubt with, you know, with expansion um, that they've had in the last 30 years, they might have, um, you know, been looking at other regions as well. As you were visiting some of these regions in Italy, did you have kind of reference, reference points back in Australia, particularly in Victoria, about where certain varieties could really work uh, well? Look, I think um, at about the same time, Dr. Richard Smart and John Walter were doing quite a lot of homo climb work, just comparing uh, sort of the climatic profiles of some of the, I guess, um, typical regions in Europe, Italy particularly, actually, with parts of Australia. And I guess that uh, having some of that information in the back of of our mind when we went um, so, you know, I think uh, there's parts of Piedmont, which, you know, the closest parts of Australia is around Beechworth and the King Valley. So, you know, knowing that, um, you know, parts of Sicily, it's probably more closer to McLaren Vale or Swan, Swan Valley, sort of the west coasts of dry, arid environments. Um, so... Yeah, like it was, it's interesting, I guess, to, 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 I guess, try and sort of in your head match the variety to the best place. But at the same time, a lot of those varieties have never really been planted outside of where they're sort of um, indigenous. So, you know, there's a lot of experimentation can go on. You can just take the Nero Doubler out of Sicily and go and plant it in the King Valley, which is really nowhere near um, parts of Sicily. But again in the right places it works quite well so um i can always recall being told too of a situation where Taroldigo, you know was taken out of uh, out of the north down into tuscany and you know ultimately the wines were infinitely better in tuscany than than they were up in the north because there was just a warmer climate and they um they did better so um we shouldn't always just assume that they're going to be best where you find them sure sure but yeah, you know, in, in many cases, it's just a—it's uh, just they just happened to be planted there, and it wasn't much. Yes, I guess. it's yeah, just yeah. complete, complete chance. Yeah. They weren't considered to be, I guess, um, a variety that would provide consistent, healthy crops and provide you know good material for making bulk wine, which certainly was certainly more the case uh, mm. for for Italian wine production, so thirty or forty years ago. Um. So what you led you to, uh, I mean, you worked for Browns for, for many years. What actually led you to um, Heathgate as a wine region and, and, you know, your involvement there, particularly with Sanchevese? Uh, okay, so if when I was at Browns, we had, uh, so we had, we had vineyards in the King Valley, um, we, which were pretty frost prone. Um, we had vineyards very like so they you would regard that as sort of warm to hot climate, probably hot climate. The soils at Millowa weren't fantastic, uh, pretty waterlogged in a lot of cases. Uh, the King Valley was pretty much in terms of grape supply, you know, we had a good supply there from 
you know, the, uh, the growers there for those varieties. We had Whitlands, very cool. So Riesling, Tremina, Pinot Grigio, that sort of, uh, I guess, varieties. And then you went to the Murray Valley up to Swan Hill and beyond to Mildura and we had pretty much hot area varieties up there. And that there was a real hole in what you would call the mild climate, I guess, production. And so we sort of set out to try and find a site that was uh, great soils, uh, frost-free, um, mild climate, and low, I guess, low, low disease incidence, and would suit a range of varieties. So in that sort of mild to warm uh, spectrum. So really the, the Mount Camel range in the Heathcote uh, region was just, Oh, the other thing was just had good water supply. So um, uh, the, the Mount Camel Range had uh, had all those attributes. So beautiful Cambrian deep red uh, volcanic soils, the, the West Waranga Channel, uh, huge water supply that comes out of the Goldman system, went along the bottom of the range, and uh, it was pretty much frost free. So uh, and it was a mild climate. So it gave us the opportunity to grow a whole host of different varieties that uh, you know, just were ideal in that sort of climate. So um, at that time, uh, I'd, I'd sort of hooked up with uh, Alberto Antonini from, from Italy. Uh, he had been out a few times consulting to people as a sort of a flying winemaker and was consulting to the Pizzinis in the King Valley. Uh, I got him to do some consulting for Browns and um, at the time uh, we just bought the property at Heathcote and I took him across there and he just absolutely fell in love with the place and he said, Marco, we've got to do something here. And he got on the phone and he rang up uh, David Glee from Liberty Wines in London and he said, you know, I found this fantastic site, we've got to do a project together. So. That was really the beginning of uh, the Greenstone project in, in Heathcote. So for all the same reasons, we um, wanted you know, the frost-free access to water, great soils, and just the suitability to those sort of warmish uh, area varieties like Sangiovese and Shiraz. So that's pretty much what we did at uh, Greenstone. So you shifted from Brown Brothers to, to Greenstone, or are we still working a bit with No, Brown no, that was all happening uh, in the background as well. So. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and at this point, there was probably a little bit, um, I guess, certain Italian varieties had um, been introduced into Australia and started to establish a bit more of a footing, but um, this would have been about the time when there, certainly in Italy there was a little bit better understanding about... Um, clonal varieties, uh, certainly with Sangiovese. Was that something that you kind of were interested in and, and, and looking at very, look, very, better yeah, clonal very, material? So. Yep, yep. Because, like, for example, um, you know, up until 1997, there was really only one or two Sangiovese clones in Australia. We know the H6V9, the original one, came from Davis University in California. Uh, clearly had been selected out of Italy from Tuscany probably in the 60s or 70s when it was all about production rather than wine quality. So that, that clone was very, very difficult to make good wine from and this required a huge amount of work in both the vineyard and the winery to make a great wine. 
so I guess sort of teaming up with Alberto in 1997, we, we got together and basically brought in a whole host of new Sangiovese clones, new Nebbiolo clones, and a pile of new varieties to Australia. So Sagrantino, Alianico, Vermentino, um, things like that, Colorino. So I guess um, bringing in those new clones just really opened you know, the doors to just infinitely better wines, or potential for better wines. So we were the first, first, I guess, to plant those new Sangiovese clones down at Greenstone. Um, and the, I think it was the 2010, no, anyway, I've lost track of time now, but uh, the very first Sangiovese we made from Greenstone was one of the first, was the first wine made in Australia from these new Sange clones, which just, um, infinitely better potential than anything we had before. Mm. So uh, the same as same with the Nebbiolos. There was, I think, two. There was Nebbiolo Fino, Nebbiolo Borgu. Um, no one knows exactly what they were, where they were selected from. Not particularly good uh, sort of clones. So again, the new uh, Matura clones, particularly uh, that came in, uh, just fantastic quality. So, yeah. So, um, with with the Greenstone project, did did that mean you did that mean you were able to get a little bit more involved with the winemaking there? Um, yes. So, look, there was obviously the three partners. Myself, I was the viticulturist, but I was the man on the ground that pretty much ran the whole project. Sure. The wine was made down at Kuyong in the peninsula uh, with Sandro. So, realistically, Alberto came out pre-vintage, and we just talked about. How we sort of wanted to make the wine. So realistically, you know, I sort of took charge of you know, Sandro physically did the wine making, but it was really between Alberto and I that you know we sort of you know worked out how we were what we we're going to do. In terms of, you know, was was there a, a sort of a desire to have a, a what I would consider to be a more authentic or a, a true varietal expression of the wine? Because certainly, um, in in my experience. Um, uh, not not so much now, but certainly um, ten ten or so years ago, um, I I, th I thought that the looking back, the the there wasn't enough sort of Sangiovese in these wines. They looked a little bit too sort of dry red Australian wine. Was was yep. that also something that you were keen to, to sort of to, to do, like express these varieties more like that they would in Italy without making them to look like Italian wines? I think um, Sangiovese's had two waves in Australia and the first wave was probably in the, I guess, of mid, early mid-90s. And people, I guess, at that time were looking for an alternative, some other alternative to sort of Shiraz or Cabernet or Merlot. And they took the old H6V9 clone and they just planted it everywhere. And they, they grew it as they would grow Shiraz or Cabernet or Merlot, and inevitably it failed. And I think from the same, as we were saying before, is that the winemakers had no idea how to make it, and they just tried to make it like Cabernet or Merlot, and ultimately you ended up just with this sort of, just sort of dry red that uh, really didn't look like Sangiovese at all. So 
I think a lot of the wineries ended up being pretty disappointed in the wines they made. They didn't really get accepted very well into the market. And a lot of those vineyards were just pulled out or grafted over to something else. And I think it was the, I guess, the new claims coming on, on board and people that knew more about how to make the wine, or how to grow the grapes and then how to make the wine, what sort of, how to handle it in the winery, what oak to use, what you know, forest to use, how to age it, what sort of cask size, et cetera, et cetera, um, was, you know, profound change in the quality of the wines that came out. So they, they looked like Sangiovese as opposed to, as you're saying, just sort of a light, medium, dry red. Yeah, and, and particularly as a sort of a blending component as well. I, I think that's sort of one of the exciting things that I've been seeing a lot more with the Italian varieties more recently is there, there seems to be a generation of, um, I guess, winemakers, but wine professionals in general who are more aware of some of the particularly more traditional uh, methods of viticulture and winemaking in a country like Italy and whether they have, um, you know, worked with Italian wines and studied them and, and kind of get an, a sense of how regions and producers might differ, but also, you know, winemakers who have gone over and done vintage in Europe and, and you know, had the opportunity to work with these varieties um, in, you know, in the soil and also in the cellar. And they're kind of um, taking that approach with the wines here in Australia. I think that that's what one of the last sort of five years has been um, significantly more wine that I think that that people who have had that kind of background have. But you know, I I always sort of you as someone who you know for a much longer period of time has kind of done the research and 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 had a sense of what works and what doesn't and where there might be opportunities here. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, with the Greenstone wines, they were, the Greenstone for me was um, particularly for Sangiovese. Uh, one of the reasons why I, I just thought of Sangiovese from Heathgate as absolutely world-class and, and something that can't be replicated anywhere else. So you, um, have, have you kind of seen that a little bit more recently? I, I mean, are you still, being getting a chance to go to the alternative varieties wine show and taste a little bit and see how things are yeah, evolving. Look, I think, I guess, um, I guess in the early parts of my career in the industry, like the Australian wine industry was entirely focused on French varieties. So you know, everyone just talked about Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, um, you know, Chablis, Gamma, you know, Beaujolais. And so I think most of the winemakers in Australia that went overseas at that period went to France and just did vintage in France. And very, very few people went and did vintage in Italy. So, but I'd think probably in the last 10 years at least now, there's, as you were saying, there's far more interest in Italian varieties and therefore there's probably, I suspect there's probably more people uh, young winemakers now going and doing vintage in Italy than they would be going to doing it in France. Look, um, having having uh, um, until recently, unfortunately, worked for uh, uh, an absolutely amazing importer of, of Italian wines uh, and working with um, you know wine professionals, sommeliers, whatnot. Um, the amount of people who are particularly going to either Piedmont, as you know, yep. the the Lange, uh, around Alba, yep. or going to Sicily. 
is yeah. it's amazing. Like they, they just, just just seems like either they're going well. Nebbiolo is is the best. I want to go where where the Nebbiolo is the best. So I'm going to go and work in Barolo Barbaresco. Or it's like oh man, Sicily is just so interesting. Oh, I want to go and make some wine and on the slopes of Vetna. That'd be what what an amazing experience that would be. So yeah, like there there certainly seems to be a lot more. I mean, there's still I'm sure a lot of people kind of wanted to go and work in Burgundy. Why wouldn't you? What an amazing place to get that experience. But I guess there's sort of this is kind of newness to some extent, ironically. Um, to to working in Italy, I think though, um, like if you think about the, I guess uh, the potential to make great Pinot Noir in Australia or make great uh, Chardonnay in Australia is really limited to some particular climates. Whereas I think the diversity of um, climate, say, you're just talking about, say, in Sicily, like, you know, there's so much more opportunity to make great uh, Nero d'Avola or uh, Caracante or something like that in Australia than there is great Pinot. So I think, um, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's probably a bit of a... Um, Viticultural land for Pinot Noir is uh, going to be significantly more expensive than... Uh, where you could grow some of these Italian varieties. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, oh, I think, you know, you're talking you about Nerdavo, about... like, like just on Sicily, you get this incredible diversity of expressions yes, and all these exactly. different climates <clears throat> and soil types, soil profiles. Yep. The difference between just Noto and Vittoria is, is, is astounding yep. how different those yep. two areas are. Yep. And they're really only about an hour and a half drive away from each other. Mm. Or even a go up, up to the sort of the highlands in, in the centre and, uh, you know, different again mm. so but look you know i think uh you can sort of see that really the whole of the murray valley in particular you think about the um calcareous you know limestone soils hot arid conditions the potential for so many of those varieties you know produce to produce so much better wine than cabernet or shiraz or merlot or you know those sort of varieties in the murray valley uh, i think the you know uh the future for, for that area to grow great wine is, is, um, that's something, that's something that I'm excited about, uh, you know, because some, it's particularly some of the um, Italian varieties in terms of the the Mediterranean context, uh, more suited to, um, the Murray Darling basin because, um, of their, um, ability to handle drought conditions and, and, you know, they uh, have, in general, a higher level of natural acidity, so you can get fresher wines as well. Um, you know, the, the, what it's great because you can look at making bulk wines. You know, but there's also there seems to be this movement towards um, premium wines from these regions because they're not really regions that are held in much regard for premium quality wines but some of the some of the wines being made from italian varieties coming out of places like mildura and the riverland uh are, are pretty amazing and, and it's exciting to see that sort of thing, thing happening mm. and you know that some of these varieties are providing those kind of opportunities look I, th- I think um as the profile of you know sicily uh in, you know climbs then obviously the 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 quality of the wine is also going to go up as well. I think with, uh, you know, just more money going in there and just, you know, better, you know, just better um, winemaking 
facilities and what have you. So I think, you know, as, as time goes by, um, it, like it's interesting, you know, if obviously if you've been to Sicily yourself, the, the I guess the the mentality to the way you grow grapes in Sicily versus the way you grow grapes in, say, the hot areas of, of uh, say, the Riverland or, you know, the Sunraysia is so different that in, in the Sunraysia, you know, we've always been sort of dictated by how big your tractor is and how wide your rows are and how many tonnes to the acre or hectare you can produce whereas Sicily um, I guess probably being a smaller island uh, and less land available you know, all of all the rows are two meters wide one meter between the plants generally speaking um, and so it just shows you what the potential can be in the hot areas of Australia if if they actually grow them um, better and uh, absolutely no doubt that in the future we're going to see some absolutely fantastic really really great wines coming out of yeah, the Riverland or Sunraysia from these varieties when when they're grown better and, and made appropriately as you're saying as well. Uh, and, and ultimately you know it does come back to um, vines getting a little bit more maturity before they really start to um, get a nice kind of equilibrium between yield and quality uh, and, and show a bit more sense of place. But um, at, at what point did the Fighting Gully Road project um, begin for you and wanting to kind of especially move back um, closer to home and, and planting a vineyard um, not far from where you grew up? Uh, look, in fact, that started quite early on in the piece. Um, we'd planted, already planted the, the, uh, the vineyard on the home farm Right. In okay. Eighty-eight. So, I guess it's interesting from the home vineyard and the rows there run north and south. As you try to drive backwards and forwards up and down the rows, you look up to Beechworth onto the escarpment onto the plateau, and uh, I always thought, I wonder, you know, I wonder what it's how different it's going to be up there to what it is down here. And uh, we ended up buying a property which actually runs up to the escarpment onto the Mumungi Basin and we can look straight down onto, well, in the distance, the uh, the home vineyard about 35 kilometres away down at about, you know, 400 metres uh, lower elevation. So um, anyway, so, yeah, so we bought that block of land in 1995 and uh, it took a few years to just clear it up from rabbits and bracken and stumps and completely unimproved. Um, we originally planted uh, just Pinot Noir and Cabernet of all varieties because, again, really weren't entirely sure there was, what was going to grow well up there, uh, whether it was going to be sort of cooler than we thought or warmer than we thought. And I guess we pretty quickly worked out that uh, it was probably warmer than we thought. So we set about actually starting to graft over some of the Pinot Noir uh, to Shiraz and Tempranillo and Sangiovese pretty early on and then a bit later on we grafted over Cabernet to quite a lot more Sangiovese and Calorino and and this year we've actually grafted uh, a bit more Cabernet to uh, Verdicchio so really mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. yeah so actually favorites. Verdicchio was actually a variety that I brought into Australia when I was at Brown's 
Uh, so it wasn't in Australia at all. Uh, and we brought that in in, in uh, 2005. And quite interestingly, and I can't, I can't answer why, but when it came out of quarantine, Browns decided they didn't actually want it. So I collected the cuttings up uh, from when it came out of quarantine at Knoxfield, took the vines up to the farm and grew them on the farm and then gave the, the cuttings to the Pizzinis in the King Valley and Fred grafted over some Chardonnay to Vidicchio. And uh, so they've been making a Vidicchio for a few years. So yeah, just last year I got some cuttings back off Fred, and uh, we've we've grafted up a bit over an acre of Vidicchio. So I'm hoping to to uh, make a large cask aged like a Villa Bucci style. Mm. Uh, You've read my yeah. mind. <laughs> That's my goal. That's my reference point for Vidicchio. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. Okay, uh, but uh, more recently you've kind of been part of this project to revive this really old site in in Beechworth is like a, a, a mission vineyard or something like am I uh, look like well there was someone who had this vineyard that's long and you're you're kind of working with someone to try and yep. replant it the way that it was what like is yeah. that 100 150 yeah. years ago or something yep yep so I guess uh, I was responsible for researching and writing the, the Beechworth geographic indication. And in doing that, you have to you know, talk about the history of grape growing and winemaking. And fortunately, in Beechworth, because the Ovens and Murray Advertiser newspaper started literally in 1855, I think it was, and gold was discovered in 1852, there's a, a written history of what happened in the region right from 1855. So we know that um, the very first vines were introduced and planted in the beach in 1857. Uh, cuttings were brought from the Botanic Gardens in Adelaide across here. So we know that they were probably actually some of the Busby collection that was taken from Sydney to Adelaide. So very, very early sort of material came into Beechworth. And uh, yeah, so vineyards were planted, I guess, more to make wine for the European uh, gold miners that were here. So very, very large German and French population. So there were vineyards yeah, from, from um, uh, France and Germany that set up vineyards probably from about 1860. So in about 1864, a very uh, famous photographer from um, uh, the US came to goldfields in Victoria and took a lot of photos. And again, fortunately, this photographer went up to the top of the um, tower of the church steeple, pretty much, and took this big 360-degree photo right around of the Beechworth sort of as it was in about 1864. And so we can see all these vineyards very, very clearly um, how they were set up. And I guess going with that and and looking at the old, uh, I guess, um, articles in the Murray Advertiser, we're able to basically work out what varieties they planted, how they were planted, 
whether they were staked or bushes or whether they were French cultivated or how, how they prepared the soils, things like that. So anyway, so there was this very, there was two quite significant vineyards on the gorge that were planted and uh, very, very good photographs of these, of these vineyards. So we, we knew from the papers they were planted at um, five feet by five feet spacings. They had Shiraz and other varieties. So I guess uh, some years ago, I approached the owner of uh, one of these properties to see whether we could uh, re-establish a vineyard in, in, on a similar sort of fashion. Um, they were pretty enthusiastic, but uh, in the end, uh, they saw the opportunity for, for subdivision and making a bit of money with no work. Um, so they basically had the property subdivided into seven lots and had sold to the lots. Um, and pretty much it was going to be a fait accompli. It was just going to get subdivided up and houses put all over this piece of land. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, one of the blocks uh, that was sold fell through and they sort of threw their hand up in the air and said, oh, look, bugger this. So I had another person come along, so Peter Bartholomew from Melbourne. And so I said, come along and have a look at this property. And so he made them an offer, which they accepted. So that was really the beginning of the, I guess, the, um, the re-establishment of the vineyard uh, pretty much as it was. So I guess the only thing we have done differently is that we've planted the vineyard uh, at three feet between the vines, although we've kept five feet between the rows. Um, and the vines are now on rootstock, whereas they were just uh, on their own roots previously. So, Well, that was pretty for uh, yeah, quite interesting. But when we, when we were digging the holes to put the vines in, we actually were able to find pieces of the old stakes, the individual stakes that were put in in the 1860s, still in the dirt. So quite remarkable, actually. Wow. Mm. Uh, and and it, is there any um, idea about what wine they were producing? Was it was it just a wine, or were they making um, white wine, red wine? Look, like you know, I mean, like obviously, winemaking um, understanding and technology was uh, probably a bit different to how it is now. Look, it's, it's pretty interesting, actually. Again, because of, fortunately, the uh, the uh, newspaper articles there was a. Uh, one particular one was the newspaper articles actually out of a, uh, a newspaper in a Chilton based newspaper um, that talked about what grapes were grown on each of these vineyards, uh, what wine styles were made, how many gallons of wine they made, cask sizes they used, uh, how the wine was sold, all this sort of thing. So we've got a, a lot of information about all of that. Um, we know on this particular vineyard they had a whole host of different things. Again, uh, a lot of them um, you would never plant up here if you had a choice simply because it's too cold. But again, without knowing uh, exactly what the climate was to start with, they just planted a lot of varieties that were you know, that came out of uh, the botanic gardens in Adelaide. So there was Mouvet or Mataro, there was Shiraz, there was Pinot, there was um, Miller's Burgundy, which was um, uh, Munier, there was Gordo, Gallo, um, a whole host of things. Um, 
So looking from the photos, we know that this guy had built some quite large cellars and the underground part of those cellars still exists. He made the wine in casks and uh, had, had them stored and aged in his cellars. Most of the wine was sold, um, not bottled, but basically in bulk to wine merchants in the town. So there was quite a lot of wine merchants and the wine was just sold in bulk and they just took the wine and sold it basically either in sort of by the glass or bottled it uh, in, in their sort of their own cellars in, in the town, which was a bit more accessible, I guess, to the, to the uh, miners at the time. Like a negotiant, basically. More or less, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, you're still absolutely. you're still fairly um, connected, involved in various sort of boards, and um, and and you're still doing a little bit of consulting around about the place. Uh, look, I'm pretty busy with both Fighting Gully Road and sort of a few like yeah, a few consulting jobs now, but I don't sort of do I don't sort of chase it like I I used to because I'm pretty flat out with all the things I'm doing as it is. I would have thought uh, that uh, you'd be more likely to have people chasing you. Uh, look, yeah, look, I do get inquiries from time to time and I certainly help out where I can. Um, certainly still on the committee of the Alternative Varieties Wine Show. I get up there every year and help out running the wine show. Uh, I judged last year as well. So really love that opportunity when it arises. Um, I don't think there's any other place in the world where you can have such a diverse range of wines, uh, you know, available to taste. And you know, I, I just still, you know, look out the window from <laughs> in Algeria in the uh, sports centre and just just think where else in the world could you possibly be doing what we are doing at the, at that time? Uh, it's quite remarkable, really. Yeah, so, look, you know, it's uh, obviously one of the one of the many many problem um, difficult things about um, what's going on. In, in the world at the moment is uh, if, if wine shows are able to, to run then there's very little chance that um, they'll have that um, access to the general public, particularly for tastings. If they do, uh, I certainly recommend people getting to Mildura for the alternative varieties wine show public tastings because it is a really fantastic opportunity to benchmark it's more than and, just a wine show yeah oh wow mr marketing <laughs> mark i didn't look think. anyways so we, we're very very <laughs> we're, we're very keen to run this show this year we think we can run it obviously without the uh, the public tasting or the you know the talk and taste or the long lunch but if you think that you know realistically we've had a couple of cracking vintages 2018 2019 a uh, few places obviously had some issues with 2020 with bushfires, but so we think there's there's such great wines in people's cellars that we really want to try and still run the show and award you know award the wines that really you know need need awarding. We just don't want to miss a year, so we're still proposing, well, hoping to run the show, and uh, so we sort of encourage people to still enter if they can. Um, you, you can certainly expect to see some entries from Vino and Trepido. Good, good. I'm very, very excited to see um, how, how the wines go this year. But uh, I really, really do appreciate you making some time. Um, it's, it's been fantastic to, to get you on the show and uh, get a, just a small sense of um, the journey that you've been on and, um, and where things are heading in the future. Um, I would, of course, recommend people get in touch 
with you um, on on um, on the websites. You you sort of dabble a little bit in uh, in the social medias. Every so so often, I get a notification <laughs> that oh, Mark Walpole's tweeted for the first time in a while, or put something on Instagram. Um, um, but people um, will be able to buy your wines um, through various sources. Um, but uh, yeah, look, it's it's been lovely, uh, and again, thank you very much. Oh, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's been uh, been great to have a chat, and hopefully, hopefully, we can catch up again soon. Indeed, for a glass of wine somewhere. Yes, or two. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of the Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, you can also check out my wine brand, Vino Intrepido, at vinointrepido.com and follow on social media at Vino Intrepido. As I mentioned, I'm a huge fan of Mark Walpole's, um, mostly because I love Italian varieties and I only make wine from Italian varieties from um, Victorian regions. So uh, I'd love your support um, and I, I can deliver anywhere in Australia. So check it out. Um, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast and on Facebook as well. And uh, please, if you are listening to this podcast on uh, any of the number of different podcast um, platforms, apps, um, please subscribe so you can get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available and also leave a rating and review I'd love to hear from you um, rating and reviewing helps out um, immensely uh, to get the podcast out to more people like I said um, I've got lots of exciting guests coming up and you know I've got 150 plus episodes still available so um, have a have a look on there uh, and as always I really do appreciate your support um, yeah Uh, Thanks again, guys, but uh, until next time, bye.